Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And we haven't done much of the film part of History and Film for several <laughs> weeks here now, but we did start this whole this whole podcast uh, going through world history chronologically with, I think we decided, about 119, 120 movies, and now we're doing a kind of a wrap-up tournament kind of thing. Right, yeah, so as a kind of a, an interim thing between... Um, our American History 100, and or sorry, our World History 100, and then our, our upcoming American History series, we're doing this tournament where we have our most interesting people in history bracket. So we divided it up into four separate regions based on the time period during which these people were alive. Uh, so the Ancient Ones bracket, Medieval on Your Ass bracket, Enlightened Industrialist bracket, and Modern Times bracket. And uh, today we are in the enlightened industrialists yes we went through uh, with 32 people we went through the first round very kind of just superficial knee-jerk reactions but now in the sweet 16 here we're definitely getting more detailed with the full biographies uh as much as reasonable obviously we talked about on some of these you could talk about you know hours and hours but we're at least trying to keep it under an hour per person yeah (laughs) <laughs> sometimes successfully <laughs> yeah it's it's, <laughs> under an it, hour. it's rough we, we get so excited uh <laughs> talking about these people which is a super super nerdy thing to say but uh that's why yeah, we're doing this podcast <laughs> as a kind of a behind the scenes thing uh i had sent you yesterday a picture of my notes as i was uh finalizing some notes and i literally put in brackets insert Medici family discussion here. <laughs> like, I can already see, uh, we've just been doing this long enough that I can already see the places, the notes where I'm like, all right, this is going to be a side discussion that's probably going to eat up some significant time and probably cause you a headache on the editing side deciding what to <laughs> cut out and how much of it is actually relevant. Well, I, I definitely feel like the alternative name for this podcast could be, oh, and a quick uh, side note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then we take side notes from our side notes, and uh, right. but I think that's you know that's that's where the fun is. That's where that's where the good stuff hides. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we're we're nearing the end of the Sweet Sixteen here, and our matchup today pits uh, Cardinal Richelieu, uh, the villain from the Three Musketeers story, against Queen Elizabeth I, who is actually the granddaughter of who I had to defend last week, Henry the Seventh. We saw her in Shakespeare in Love in just kind of more of a cameo role. Actually, Judy Dench won Best Supporting Actress uh, for her portrayal of Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, but we also could have done, you know, there's a movie Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett we could have done as well. And I just, mm-hmm. uh, I've talked many times about how, yes, this project started kind of based on my love of all these English monarchs and how we, these movies could be linked together. But we didn't want to do the whole show just on that. So I left out the Elizabeth film in particular. Which is fine. It's not... It's not great. Okay, have the, you seen it? the The first one was the best picture nominee. The, yeah, the, the that doesn't. Okay. Mean that it's good, right? I, I haven't seen it. I haven't <laughs> seen it in twenty years, probably. Uh, and then the second one didn't get near as good reviews. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick with her uh, portrayal in uh, Shakespeare in Love. Then I guess. 
which is actually sounds like pretty darn accurate for that point in her life. But uh, but, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So yes, we're just going to run through the uh, biographies here and then we will decide who wins and moves on to the Elite Eight. And if there's a tie, we do have a little point system, which I was kind of looking with just this week's matchup and then uh, one more matchup from modern times left to go. And I only have 51 points left and you have the full 100. <laughs> so Logan can pretty much pick the winners. These, uh, maybe next I mean, two brackets. depending but. on what happens today i don't know i i was uh i mean this is a i don't think this is a spoiler alert at all but you know full disclosure up front i was thinking you know i don't know if cardinal richelieu could stand up to qe like she's kind of a powerhouse going into this like i kind of it's foregone conclusion but the more research that i did cardinal richelieu is an interesting guy he had he did quite a bit of really interesting stuff in his life and and i almost kind of well we're gonna get into it here but i almost kind of almost had the opposite where i was just like okay queen elizabeth should be a no-brainer and i started doing the research and not that i'm gonna say like oh that's it but it was more just like that oh i already knew all this stuff like there wasn't i didn't i didn't stumble across surprises and that gets into what we've talked about before with the whole novelty of it i definitely did there was stuff because the lot when we did these almost said characters. Well, we did these historical figures. (laughs) I I guess Cardinal Richelieu is a character too. When we did these historical figures for the round of 32, we didn't go in depth as much. Right. So we didn't do all the research to find some of these hidden gems. Yeah. 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 And so some of the stuff was like, oh, wow, that's kind of crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. It is fun to see how obvious heavy hitters like Cleopatra and Genghis Khan are, are moving on, but also people that neither of us would have expected and then maybe even kind of barely made the 32 like uh, a shock of the great and empress matilda are just way right. more interesting when you start to kind of uh, look a little closer so yeah yeah okay so we're gonna start we start with the lower seeds basically it's a home field advantage for the higher seeds so that would be cardinal richelieu who upset mozart in the first round so right uh tell us all about cardinal, cardinal richelieu yeah, so our, our our number seven seed in the enlightened industrialist bracket cardinal richelieu aka Armand Jean Duplessis, uh, which, and I'm going to butcher so many French (laughs) pronunciations in this episode. So apologies to you, Rich, because I know that you probably know how to pronounce this stuff. I might actually just ask you to pronounce some of it if I I don't know. It's it's but tricky. also apologies to any listeners who are French or speak French. It's it. I tell you though, it's it's a struggle because so I remember like when I you know Spanish in high school, you basically it's super easy to pronounce because in Spanish you just pronounce every letter other than like maybe yeah. like a silent H or whatever, but like every letter, uh-huh. every vowel is pronounced. There's like it's just super simple. French is almost like. Wait, seriously? You just don't say the second half of this word? Like, yeah, it makes yeah. no sense. I, this is uh, this is the episode that, while doing the research, I used Google Translate by far. Not to translate what things mean, but to use the little text-to-speech portion oh, okay. from French to get the little French lady on Google to tell me how to say all these right, words. Because right. I'm like, looking at it, I'm like, I have no idea. I right. have no idea what that was. Right. So, so yeah, all that is to say, even though I've studied it some, I struggle a lot on when I say the second half of words or not. And it, it's, again, anyone who knows French uh, is going to be like, wait, really? What? But I just yeah. get confused on it still. Yeah. I mean, even Richelieu, like, I, I knew Richelieu because of Three Musketeers, but ha- had I not had that knowledge, I would have looked at it and said, I don't know, like, Richelieu? Like, right. I have no idea. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Je suis désolé. 
<laughs> yeah. All right. So Cardinal Richelieu, a.k.a. Armand Jean Duplessis, which is his actual name, a.k.a. Liminance Rouge, which is uh, the Red Eminence, which I think is actually a pretty badass nickname. That's kind of badass. That's kind of badass. <laughs> a.k.a. the bad guy from the Three Musketeers. He was born in 1585 to a family that was uh, kind of a lesser nobility. Richelieu is actually the name of the kind of area where he's from. So like his father was Signor de Richelieu, which is like a lord. So he's like the lord of Richelieu. So Richelieu isn't actually this guy's name, uh, but it is what I'm going to call him for the rest of the episode. Wait, it's what he was referred to. He was Cardinal Richelieu. Like they, that was what he was called, but right, it wasn't his name. Right, but right. He, he wasn't, uh, right, yeah, he, he wasn't. Uh, Almost like Genghis Khan wasn't his name. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's more of a title, but that's what we're going to call him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, born into lesser nobility. He uh, initially um, in his early life was going to study philosophy and aspired to be in the French military, but, you know, fate had other plans. Uh, His father had actually died fighting during the French wars of religion between the Catholics and the Huguenots in the late 1500s. So when when Richelieu was like a a small kid, um, his father died, which those were actually taking Well, that was the the war that was kind of started by Catherine de' Medici, who we saw in in the, the last round of 32 who was a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth I. Right, right. uh, Who you're about to do. But anyway, so because his father was a soldier um, and had died as a gift from King Henry III of France to Richelieu's family, basically like, thanks for sending me your dad to like let him die in the war, um, they were granted the bishopric of Luçon. So it kind of fell to... Richelieu's mom then to choose who was which of her sons was going to be um, the bishop. She initially was going to pick his older brother, but he didn't want to be a bishop. He actually went and became a monk and like, you know, renounced all of his hmm. earthly possessions and titles and everything when you do that. So he couldn't be the bishop. Um, so it fell to Richelieu. So uh, Richelieu joined the clergy and he was nominated as Bishop of Luçon by King Henry IV in 1606. He was not initially old enough to actually take the position, so he needed to get special dispensation from Pope Paul V, which he was granted, and he was consecrated as bishop in April of 1607. And so after he becomes a bishop, he like gets really into his studies. He dedicates every waking minute to being the best clergyman he can be. And so in 1614, uh, he becomes one of the clergy's representatives to the Estates General, which is a uh, it's like an advisory body to the king. Um, it's made up of clergy, nobles, and commoners. Those are kind of like the three different um, houses or like the three different sections, similar to like a British Parliament, but they don't have any actual power. Like they don't actually make any laws; they're like just there to advise the king. Is that kind of the estates like we see in the French Revolution? The first estate, second estate, third estate, as far as nobility, church, and regular people? Maybe. I don't okay. know. This is this is a separate body that actually gets dissolved in 1614. Oh, okay. So, okay. Okay. Although I, I think reading about it, it was reestablished later, but I don't know the timeline on that. So it might be related, but not this specific body. Okay. So while he's in the estates general, he starts to get that like taste for power. He wants to move up. 
He starts lobbying for political power for clergymen and for them to be exempt from taxes. So, uh, you know, like <laughs> things that are still going on today. Oh, that's crazy. Does that start? <laughs> does that start back here with Richelieu, the not taxing churches? At least in France, yeah, he's uh, like pushing for yeah, pushing for the church or the clergymen at least, yeah, to be exempt from taxes and to actually have more power politically and not just be this like separate religious thing because huh. um, it's it's completely different the way that the catholic church is viewed at this time like it's not like it is today which the catholic church obviously still has like some influence and power but like at this time it was like almost a political entity, an important political yeah, entity, political entity yeah. as yeah. much as it was a religious entity right right which we saw that with like pope julius ii and stuff and and Obviously, that wanes over the centuries, but even like when JFK ran for president, one of the others, you know, the Republican arguments against him was just like, oh, he'll just be a puppet of the Pope in Washington. And it's just right. like even kind of a remnant from centuries ago yeah. where that kind and of political. Yeah, this is it's yeah. 350 years after this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he's in the Estates General. The Estates General gets dissolved in um, 1614. And he starts working for a guy named Concino Concini, who is the favorite of the Queen Mother, Marie de' Medici. So this is where, like all, I mentioned yeah, before, all the Medicis, yeah. we could talk about the Medi the Medici's because, you know, sharp eared listeners will say, Hey, wait a minute, wasn't one of your previous people? Wasn't that was Catherine de' Medici? How are they related? Not directly. It's not like it's uh her oh, okay. mom or grandma or anything. Like they have They're probably like Distant cousins or something? Uh, yeah, actually, like pretty distant. So okay, I know there was two main Medici branches going back, you know, to the the origins of that kind of family getting becoming prominent. All right, can you see my screen? Yep, there it is. Okay, so this is the family tree of the Medici's. Can you see? Can you read any of that? Or is yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so here is Marie de Medici down here, and then this is Catherine de Medici. So their common ancestor, they, they don't have a common ancestor close at all. Their common ancestor is this Giovanni de Bici, who died in 1429. But basically, he had two sons, Lorenzo and Cosmismo, who both then their lines became, you know, the two like main the Medici, Medici branches. family. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Catherine is descended from Cos, uh, Cosimo, 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 I'm butchering it. Cosmo, I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Marie is descended from Lorenzo. Okay. But that's that's the, the Medici connection there. Okay. And that Lorenzo is different than Lorenzo the Magnificent. So that's the kind of the more famous. Oh, yeah. Heard. There's yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, Giovanni's and Lorenzo's and okay. Piero's and Ferdinando's. There's like Francesco. There's like just, you know, seven of each. Yeah, there's Lorenzo the Magnificent. There's one of them who has... Oh, yeah, he, Lorenzo the Magnificent and then his son, Piero the Unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what did we Which say? I thought was kind what of What did funny. we just say? Those, we said those, those are called epithets? Yeah. Yeah, okay. We need epithets. <laughs> yeah. So, this, so the, the, the Medici here that Richelieu becomes uh, friends or partners or whatever with, she'd be the mother of Louis Thirteenth then? Yeah, so this is yeah. the mother of Louis Thirteenth. So... Richelieu is like kind of under Concino Concini, who is her favorite. Okay. And at this time, Louis the Thirteenth is still like a, a minor. Yeah, yeah. So 
Marie de Medici is the regent. She's basically she's the the ruler of France at this at this point in time because Louis the Thirteenth is still a, a little kid. Okay, so he starts to kind of work his way up, you know, working for this Consino Consini guy, and he is named Secretary of State in 1616, where he starts to really hone his skills in the realm of foreign policy, and so he's doing his Secretary of State thing, and then. Even after Louis XIII comes of age, Marie de' Medici is still basically the real power behind the throne, because even though Louis XIII had reached the age of majority, he is still young and impressionable, and like he's like a little kid. He's going to listen to his mom. Right. And he kind of famously was always pretty impressionable, just kind of at the whims of his uh, advisors and stuff. Yes, which is like... One of the reasons why Richelieu Cardinal so Richelieu powerful. was able to yeah. do yeah everything that he did, yeah. why he was so powerful, because he was yeah basically to exert a large amount of influence over Louis the Thirteenth. Had he you know tried to come to power when some other more popular or you know uh, just a stronger, a stronger king. Yeah. willed yeah. king, we might not even know who Richelieu is at all. Right, but uh, again, you know, it's like the. It's a combination of, like, his ambition and skill and also just being born in the right place at the right time. I always think of the uh, the fantasy football comparison, too, where it's like, it's talent plus opportunity. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, Marie de Medici and Consini, they were still, you know, basically the real power behind the throne. And they were implementing a lot of policies that were unpopular with a lot of people in France. And because of this, they were both targeted by a guy named Charles de Lunes, de Loin. I'm just going to say Loon. I don't know. Charles de Loon. <laughs> it's not really that important. No, um, <laughs> so uh, he influenced Louis Thirteenth to order Consini to be arrested and basically said, hey, have him arrested, and if he resists, uh, you can kill him. Hmm. And... Of course, that is all but telling his guards to just assassinate him, basically. Um, so, Consini is assassinated. Oh, wow. Uh, Marie de' Medici is taken into custody. And with Consini dead, that means that Richelieu has lost his power because Richelieu worked for Consini. Gotcha. Right. And Richelieu is banished to uh, Avignon. In 1619, however, Marie de' Medici escapes custody. And uh, starts a rebellion against her son, Louis Thirteenth, And this is called, <laughs> again, it's French, uh, The War of the Mother and the Son, which is uh, Guerre de la yeah. Mère et du Fils. Yeah. which Is that I mean, pretty good? Could you understand the, what I was trying to say? <laughs> well, well, I knew what you were going to say because you said it in French or in English first. Or, gotcha. You know, so, yeah, so yeah, La Guerre de la Mer et Tuffy, or wait, wouldn't be Tuffy, it'd be Suffy, or Sonfy. I don't know. Anyway. Anyways, so the War of the Mother and the Son. Um, yeah. There was actually two of them, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, so uh, Marie de Medici starts this rebellion against her son. So King Louis and Charles de Lune are like, well, what are we going to do? You know, we don't want to fight a war. So they go to Richelieu and they say, hey, come back, come back to court. You were, you know, worked for Marie de Medici. You know her. You can talk to her. You can reason with her. 
come help us out and try and mediate peace. And so Richelieu sees this as golden opportunity, uh, successfully mediates negotiations that saw Marie de' Medici freed, kept peace between her and King Louis, and even got uh, Marie de' Medici back on the royal council. Mm. So pretty uh, skilled I say, talker ar- yeah, and I say, negotiator. Pretty good arbiter then, yeah. Yeah. So shortly after this, Charles de Lune dies of scarlet fever in 1621. Again, just like uh, another golden opportunity for Richelieu, but this basically paves his path to the top. It clears any obstacle. Oh, right. He's basically now, yeah, now he's the top advisor to kind of wolves by default. Yeah. Right. And he didn't even have to, like, scheme to, like, have this guy killed or assassinated. This is like <laughs> Scarlet Fever took him out, and he's like, oh, sweet, here we go, to the top. <laughs> so he is nominated for a cardinalate by King Louis, uh, which is granted for... Uh, or granted by Pope Gregory the Fifteenth in 1622, and uh, he becomes a member of the Royal Council of Ministers in 1624. Okay, so I'm gonna. What's fun too is I, I actually have a copy of the Three Musketeers sitting right here next to me. Honestly, just a coincidence because I happen to be reading it now, regardless of anything we're doing. But uh, it start the 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 story starts in April of 1625. So like just okay. right, right. So what you're saying just now rolls right into the Three Musketeers. Obviously, it's right. fictional, but as far as timeline goes, right. Well, and <laughs> so uh, he becomes a part of the Council of Royal Ministers in 1624, and immediately starts to plot against the chief minister. He starts to like print these pamphlets and like spread all his disinformation about him. A guy named Charles de la Vieuville. And basically gets him booted from the chief minister role and takes over the position the next day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, right about the time that, uh, yeah, Three Musketeers takes place is like he's just made it to the top. And now he is in a position as chief minister to a very young and naive king. <laughs> naive. Yeah. Kind of not gullible. Naive. Yeah. Is a good word. He's able to exert his influence and he is basically the ruler of france at this point he's at least the person in france with like the most influence right he's essentially calling the sauce and essentially running the country through the king not in like right. necessarily even an evil way just because the king needs help and this is the guy calling the shots behind the scenes so he's right. running france yeah yeah so he in his chief minister role basically everything that he does for the rest of his time in this role, falls into one of two categories. And these were like the two big things that he wanted to accomplish that he saw as important and that he thought and was correct in his thinking because he was successful and it worked, that would establish France as a uh, European power. And those two things are concentrate power at the top and screw over the Habsburgs in every way possible, whenever possible. <laughs> Which they were already doing themselves genetically. Oh, Hasbrook's land. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. So during this time, uh, when he comes to power, is uh, it's like towards the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, which it started in 1618, and this is like 1625. So uh, it's towards the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, which is a a war that was fought across Europe. It was basically... Um, it started out as a Protestants versus Catholics war, and during this war, Richelieu basically immediately sees the importance of 
checking the power of the Habsburgs, basically keeping them on their toes. You know, don't let Germany unify. The Habsburgs already at this point had control over the uh, Holy Roman Empire, which was directly to the east of France, and Spain, which is to the south of France. Um, uh, To quote Pulp Fiction, they were beset on all sides by the Habsburgs. And so he did not want Germany to unify. And he does this not by flexing his Catholicism, but rather by successfully reframing the war from a Protestant versus Catholic thing to a everybody versus the Habsburgs thing. Which goes, we actually talked about that last time with the whole idea. Like he saw how powerful United Germany could be. And in the 20th century, we yes. saw how right Richelieu was when they finally united and it yes. started causing havoc and we get World War One and World War Two. So even though this is right. centuries before that, it was it's yeah. the same kind of resources and people that kind and of lead he to this. Is, he's so forward thinking in this because at the time he's saying, guys, Protestants versus Catholics does not matter. It does, you know, we need to look out for our national interests like we shouldn't care what you know, branch of Christianity our allies have. We just need to make allies and keep Germany from unifying and defeat the Habsburgs. And people were like, oh, I can't believe that you would align France with Protestant powers. And, you know, that's like, it's heresy. And he's like, no, like you don't understand. It doesn't matter. Like, if we want to survive, if we want to be influential and powerful, we have to put aside our religious interests and we have to elevate our national interests above them, which was like, unheard of right it's a game changer like again we've we talked about it before in, in the first round it's like the reason we have strong nation states basically in the world is because of cardinal richelieu's policy right. here right now right and to go along with this like i said his other thing was concentrate power at the top so at the time depending on what area you live in the king of your country and i'm putting that in air quotes doesn't really have that much like direct influence over your life you're really ruled by whatever kind of local lower noble is in your area and Richelieu didn't like that and he kind of saw that as like an obstacle to France as a country succeeding um, because he wanted France to be one entity and he didn't like that these local rulers had so much power in their regions and so in uh, 1626 like immediately after he takes power he abolishes the position of constable of France, which is basically like a second in command to the king, had a lot of like uh, what we would think of as like executive branch type powers, military type stuff. And he just said that's too much power for someone who isn't the king to have. Right. So that position's gone. He orders the demolition of castles and forts belonging to lower nobles. So basically, if you have a fort and it's not like along the border of the Holy Roman Empire or Spain, like something that we need to actually defend against an invasion. If you just have some castle or fort that's just like yours so that if the peasants in your area revolt, you can hide, it's gone, demolished by order of Cardinal Richelieu, but like the king. Right, because it doesn't serve France. Right, yeah. And that, unsurprisingly, really pissed off the nobility. So you have like the religious people who are mad at him because he's putting national interests over religious interests. And you have the nobility that 
hates him because he's taken away all their power and influence and giving it all to the king. But once he did that, it didn't matter what the nobles thought because now all the power is his. <laughs> <laughs> all right. When they give the power to the king, that means they're giving the power to the cardinal himself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, uh, what are you going to do about it? I have all of the power now. Like, be mad all you want. Right. And again, the, I mean, the whole story of the Musketeers is like them trying to like undermine the cardinal and worrying about his influence not just over the king but over the country and just uh right they're trying to they're trying to thwart his machinations is kind of the whole story in the king's tears right yeah so during this 30 years war in with and under the 30 years war was the huguenot revolt in france which were the huguenots were french protestants and uh there's a lot of kind of like proxy war going on at this time where you don't have like france and you know, the Holy Roman Empire and England, like, actually at war with each other. But, like, the English are, you know, interested in undermining France, and the Spanish are, and France is interested in undermining the Holy Roman Empire. And right. so you have, like, these... They're still rivals. ...kind of battles, and, and they're funding, basically funding the enemies of each other. Well, <laughs> having just said that, uh, Charles I of England does actually declare war uh, against France to help the Huguenots... Uh, because England at this time is a relatively new Protestant power. They split from the Catholic Church under Henry VIII, who then Queen Elizabeth I succeeded him, and then she didn't have an heir, so it went to the whole, you know, James I and James VI, and then his son is Charles I. Right. So that's who is uh, King of England at this time, um, and is fighting a war against France to help the Huguenots, and in 1627, the town of La Rochelle is um, under siege. And uh, Cardinal Richelieu is actually personally, or is that Three Musketeers? I can't tell what book that is when you hold it Oh, up. yeah, yeah. So, no, like, the siege of La Rochelle is, like, the second half of the Three Musketeers. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, they're all Cardinal there. Richelieu is personally leading troops yeah. <laughs> in the siege of La Rochelle, which is a Huguenot stronghold. And it's... This is, like, again, something that is, like, really it illustrates how much, like, power and how uh, diverse the responsibilities of the church was back then. <laughs> like, uh, we were talking about, when we talked about Pope Julius II, like, the warrior pope, and he's, like, the pope going to, like, fight wars. And this is Cardinal Richelieu, who is, I mean, he's part of the clergy. He's, he's a cardinal. Um, so he's like, you know, works for the Catholic Church, but he's also like this political leader and also like leading troops into battle. Right, right. I just think it's like super interesting and it's like so different from how it is today. But uh, so he's leading these troops in the in the siege of La Rochelle and the French didn't have a strong enough navy to keep on the siege because uh, La Rochelle is like a, a coastal city. And Richelieu initially asked England for help, but they refused um, because they were helping the Huguenots. So instead, Richelieu says, well, the Huguenots are supported by Spain because, again, the Huguenots are opposed to King Louis XIII. And so basically anyone who isn't French at this time is like, help the Huguenots, help the Huguenots. And so Richelieu says, well, I know that they're, the Huguenots are supported by Spain and the Protestant Dutch are fighting a war of independence against Spain in the Spanish Netherlands. And even though they're Protestant, they're fighting Spain, and Spain is helping the Huguenots, even though the Habsburgs were Catholic and were helping the Huguenots who were Protestants. So he's like, well, if they're doing it, why don't I just do that same thing? So 
I'm going to get the Protestant Dutch to give me a bunch of ships, like naval backing, you know, basically give them a bunch of money, get a bunch of naval backing uh, to help me fight the Huguenots and end the siege at La Rochelle. And it worked. The Protestant Dutch gave him a bunch of ships, and the city fell in 1628. That's crazy. And this was like, again, unheard of and very unpopular because everyone's like, why are we aligning ourselves with the Protestants? Like, the Protestant Dutch are Protestants. They're heretics. You know, they're blasphemous going against the Catholic Church. Why are we getting their help? And he's like, it doesn't matter what they believe. They're helping us fight the Huguenots and make France stronger. So the Huguenots keep fighting uh, until 1629. Also at this time, the Habsburgs uh, took advantage of a distracted France with the Huguenots to try and expand their influence in northern Italy. So after La Rochelle falls, Richelieu again personally leads French forces in battle, this time in Italy, against the Spanish, against the Habsburgs, the Spanish Habsburgs. Because of all this stuff that he's doing for France and his performance and his duties as chief minister in 1629, the dukedom of Richelieu is created for Cardinal Richelieu, and he is made a peer of France, which is like a very high noble order in France. It's just funny because he's the one calling the shots. So he's like, you know what I should do while I'm calling the shots? Give myself a better title. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, technically it's the king that gives it to him, but he's like... But the, he's like, hey, king, look at all the stuff I'm doing. You know, it'd be like really cool. It'd be really cool if there was, I don't know, like a king who could like give me a dukedom or something. And the king's like, hey, do you want a dukedom? I think those are called duchies. But yeah. Or is it, is it both? No, this is a duke. It's a dukedom. Dukedom versus, I thought duchy was the word for dukedom. I don't know. On Wikipedia, it's called the dukedom of. Oh, okay. Okay. So what's a duchy? Anyway, continue. <laughs> Well, now I want to know what a duchy is. It, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe duchy, they're uh... duchy versus dukedom. I think they're the same thing. Oh, often d- duchy often called a dukedom. Yeah, they're the same thing. So the, a duchy is the territory or geopolitical entity ruled by a duke, whereas his title or area is called a dukedom. Mm, okay. So like the land is the duchy. The, a lot of the position yeah. is the dukedom. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, so uh, getting back to Cardinal Richelieu, after he's made a peer of France, Marie de' Medici basically recognizes, oh, Richelieu is like getting a lot of political power and influence. And uh, this is one of those things where if he wasn't so cunning and smart and had a bunch of foresight, this might have been like the time where he like flies too close to the sun and ends up, you know, take like one scheme too far. Right. Uh, but that, not not Richelieu. So Marie de Medici tries to talk the king into dismissing Richelieu, but Richelieu has enough influence over the king that he's actually able to talk him out of it. And Marie then tries to convince the king again, but this time with the help of the king's brother, Gaston, who's the Duke of Orléans, and says, hey, like we really need to get rid of this Cardinal Richelieu guy. And this is even more impressive because King Louis Thirteenth didn't actually personally really like Cardinal Richelieu that much. No, right. He just kind of liked that he was knew all the right things to do and was, you know, helping France be powerful and influential all over Europe. But he doesn't actually like him as a person. So, like, it, when his mom's saying, hey, get rid of this guy, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't really care for him anyway. So that makes it even more impressive that 
Cardiff was able to talk him out of it, not once, but twice, because the second time that uh, Marie de Medici tries to get the king to kick Richelieu out of court, it's actually called the Day of the Dupe, which is like French for fool, like mm. the Day of the Fool, because Cardinal Richelieu talks <laughs> the king into not only not kicking him out of court, but he's like, hey, you need to actually repent for your sins, for <laughs> kicking me, a cardinal, out of your court. Right, how dare and you? Do, and the king does. The king's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I repent against, <laughs> I repent for my sins against the Catholic Church and against God. And, and, and meanwhile, meanwhile, his mom's just over there facepalming. <laughs> yes, exactly. And his brother. <laughs> yeah. And they, like, they kept doing it. They kept trying to come up with these plots. They kept scheming, but they were never successful because Richelieu was so smart and he has this massive spy network, not just in France, but all across Europe. And like every plot to remove him from power or assassinate him or undermine him in any way gets discovered by his spies and he kills whoever is responsible for trying to overthrow him. It's like he's like a little finger and a Varus from Game of Thrones put together where right, he has he's right. like. Super smart and cunning, but also has this massive spy network where he just knows yeah. everything that's going on. But also a, a general and advisor. So he's like Tywin Lannister, too. He's like he's like mm-hmm. all three of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it is around this time that his power does start to slip a little bit, which it's like slips in relative to how much power he had before. But like he's still not getting overthrown. He's still not getting kicked out of court or anything. In 1641, he fails to achieve the rank of papal legate in France, which is basically like the Pope's personal representative, like a personal extension of the Catholic Church in France. And it it was just because the Pope didn't like his foreign policy and the fact that he was, you know, doing all the stuff with the Protestants. So, like, he wasn't ever kicked out of the Catholic Church for any of that. And also, he never, like, advocated for... France becoming Protestant, like him and the Catholic Church were still kind of cool, but the Pope was like, yeah, like, but I'm not going to make you my personal representative to France because of all that stuff. We're just not on the same page on enough things, right? Right. So, yeah, basically it's like his power starts to slip, not because he's like losing power, but because he like isn't getting promoted to the highest possible rank of the Catholic Church he, he He finally hits a ceiling. Yeah, yeah. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned. Right. Uh, also around this time, he gets one of his, uh, f- a friend, sorry, a son of one of his friends, Henri, on Louis XIII's court. And he basically, like, as he's getting older, he's like, well, I'm not able to exert as much influence. So basically his plan was, I want to get this kid, this younger kid, onto the court so that he can be the favorite of the king and then basically be a fresh voice to the king, but I'm still going to control this kid, and by extension, then control the king still, even though the words aren't going to be coming out of my mouth. Right. But this kid kind of had his own political ambitions and realizes what's going on. He realizes that he's not going to be able to be, you know, autonomous in this role. And so he starts, this Henri kid starts to scheme against Richelieu, but again, Richelieu oh, really? spies find out, and Henry is, or Henri is yeah. executed. <laughs> Which again, Richelieu's power slipping means that oh well, instead of his plan going exactly how he wants, like the kid tries to 
scheme against him, but he finds out anyway and has him killed. So even in his failures, he's successful. <laughs> and then, and this is this is towards the end of his life, um, he starts suffering from these fevers, um, which actually I think they they go on for like years, like the last several years of his life. He has these recurring fevers. Uh, I don't think it they know. They didn't know at the time exactly what it was. Um, I saw one source that maybe it was like malaria or some some ailment that is uh, making him sicker and sicker gradually. And obviously not helped by the fact that his doctors were literally bleeding him. And the more he got sick, the more they said, oh, we need to bleed him more. And so it was just kind of this like negative feedback loop. Um, and he ends up he uh, dying on December 4th, 1642. But he's not done being interesting yet because uh, after he died, he's buried in France. And during the French Revolution, his body gets dug up and his head is stolen by the revolutionaries. And it it ended up as a trophy for this some noble family in Brittany, uh, which is like in northwest France. And this family just like had... Cardinal Richelieu's head as this like thing that they would like bring out at parties because I guess his for some reason I, I didn't look into why but for some reason his head was or at least his face was removed and mummified during the embalming process and then buried with him so it's like pretty well preserved you can actually there there is a photo of it you can see it well it's kind of cringy I don't know if I want to see that <laughs> it's it's not really like that no bad. right it just right, looks right. like a mummy face but uh, yeah, so this <laughs> this noble family has Cardinal Richelieu's head, like mummified head that they like bring out. They're like, hey, look, it's Cardinal Richelieu. Isn't this pretty crazy? This is like a thing that we have just like <laughs> in our house. And it wasn't reinterred until Napoleon III convinced the family to give it back to France in 1866. Wow. So he died. Yeah, he died in 1642. And then in the late 1700s, late yeah. 1700s. So like 150 years later. His head is dug up, and then it's another couple generations, yeah. 60, 70 years after that, that his head is actually reinterred. And they, the photo comes from in like the 1890s. They were like doing some renovations at the place where he's interred, and they they photographed his his head. So that's why there's photographs of it that you can see. But yeah, his head was not buried with his body for like 200 years. Well, that, that, yeah, there is always that, that interesting question of. At what point? So obviously, we 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 treat grave sites as sacred until enough time goes by. So the question is, yeah, how much time goes by between now? It's no longer sacred. Now it's uh, scientifically or historically interesting, and you you dig it up. So it's at what point does it go from sacrilegious to of scholarly importance? Like, where's that yeah. line? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This seems kind of that seems kind of fast though. Like we're talking no no I don't yeah I don't disagree because hey, we start digging up like Civil War soldiers it'd be like whoa 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 what are you doing right yeah or even like I, I would even because this is so he died in 1642 the picture of his face was taken in the 1890s so it's 250 years later so like think about like digging up um I don't know like Benjamin Franklin would right, like right it's it's a little more re- like barely more recent but even that would be like oh i don't know that seems kind of creepy to me no right right but they did have, <laughs> they have done that with some uh to do like dna tests though where the they will oh, for sure to, yeah 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 but then but you know like a uh egyptian mummy that's like 5000 years old like just put that in a museum 
have right. little kids go look at it. <laughs> right. So yeah, how long before they you know disinter Benjamin Franklin and put him in put his remains in a museum right. instead? Although yeah. I mean, then probably not because obviously there's obviously kings and queens of England still buried in Westminster Abbey that have been right. there since well before Richelieu's time, and so it's almost kind of like a. It just depends on where you're at, I guess. Too, if you're in a sake more True. sacred place that's still in use, you're getting right. a little safer than yeah. if you're. If someone stumbles yeah. across Genghis Khan in the middle of the steps of Mongolia, well, they're digging that up right away and for sure, hundred percent, yep. right, right. Yeah. So to to round it out, I wanted to talk about his legacy. Yes. So his legacy, putting national interests over everything else, unheard of. Strong central government. You know, get the power away from your local nobles. Give it all to a a ruling head of state, again, unheard of and very unpopular, obviously, with the uh, local nobles. But he was successful. He died before the end of the Thirty Years' War, but uh, France was victorious. They kept Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, from unifying, and they were the, uh, well, like we said before, Germany didn't unify until 1871. And right. what happened right after that? World War One. It's like... Right. Cardinal Richelieu was able to see, like, we can't allow Germany to be its own entity. And he was kind of right, because as soon as they were, war was inevitable in World War One and World War Two. And honestly, I saw a video that talked about, you know, we don't really think or at least I didn't really ever think about this. But kind of the only reason that that doesn't still happen today is because of the development of nuclear weapons, like only because. A war means destroying the entire planet. Do wars like this not happen anymore? Right, and and because of the destruction of and even nuclear weapons aside, because of the destruction of World War Two, it seems like the Germans as a as a people have gone far to the other side, and they, they're one of the strongest economies, and they're much more pacific or pacific. What would you have? <laughs> pacifist. Yeah, they're much more pacifist, but it, it seems like that's in the weird way to say the adjective. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. So they're they're uh, they've learned their lesson, and like they're they're hardcore against like you can't you can't wave a Nazi flag in uh, Germany like you can in the United States. Oh, it's like, literally illegal there. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they've uh, they kind of maybe learned their mistake. What I was going to uh, contemplate here too is uh, from an alternate history standpoint, it would be interesting to see what if Germany did unify in say. 1660 after Lewis dead and all that in 1660 and then so would you have seen some of these wars earlier before the weapons got as advanced Probably. and then yeah. maybe it would have been less tragic or do you have a scenario where europe is actually all well, unified under germany for hundreds of years and it'd maybe be really interesting to see how it played out either that or you end up with like maybe we have a world war like before world war one and then you have World War One, and then right, World but without War chemical II. weapons or planes or tanks, or yeah, so it'd be a right, whole right, right. But I'm saying thing. like yeah. maybe it's you know, yeah, I, I don't know. There's there's so much of uh, what if there is actually um, a YouTube channel called Alternate History. Yes, where yes, the guy I've seen some of those. Does fascinating. Like yeah. exactly those scenarios. Like what if, uh, you know, what if Germany won? World War Two, right? What, and so, yeah, what would happen? Yeah, those are pretty cool because, like, the first half of his videos, it's the actual history, and then yeah. he hits the alternate point. He's like, now everything after right. here is speculation, but it's right. all based on the history up to this point. Yeah, yeah, it yeah is it's kind of actually fascinating. A, a, a cool channel. Um, so, in addition to yeah, the national interests um, over everything else, including religious interests and the strong central government. He also was instrumental in encouraging French exploration and colonization in the New World. 
So he was Canada. He was big into <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was big into pushing, pushing for more people and influence. Yeah, in what is now the United States um, and Canada, basically like. Imagine a a V that starts in Louisiana and the eastern part, the eastern half is the uh, Appalachian Mountains. The western half is like the Mississippi River kind of, and it makes a V up into Canada that basically goes all the way to the North Pole. And that's that's New France. Right. At at this time. And uh, so he was all about that. Um, He also was influential in the creation of the company of new france which is kind of like france's answer to the dutch west india company again just trying to exert french influence and control wherever possible it is important to note that france did actually have a very different relationship with the native population than like the uh spanish and the english settlers did france was like all about the Indians becoming French. They mm. were like, yeah, like let, we should totally be like marrying them. Like similar to the way that they viewed Algeria, how we talked about in the battle of Algiers, where they were like, is one of those things where it's maybe not to the extent of Algeria being like literally part of France, but they did kind of have that attitude when it came to the people. Like basically if an Indian guy is like, I want to be French. Like, he's French now. He doesn't need to do, like, you know, declare I'm, you know, naturalized or, like, he is just as much a French guy as the French fur trapper who was born in Paris. Right. Almost a little bit of, uh, there's less supremacy there. The French aren't, like, acting like they're superior. Right. They're more just, like... At the same time... (laughs) At the same time, you know, like we talk about, history has a lot of gray area. (laughs) They were not going to basically be allowed to, like, be Indians... Like, they were going to be French. Oh, gotcha. You have to assimilate. We don't want right. to keep your culture. But anybody's welcome to embrace our culture. And and you have to be Catholic. So oh, don't be oh, gotcha. worshiping <laughs> your heathen gods, Indians. Okay, so there's a little <laughs> bit of superiority complex there, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anybody can join our superiority cult. It'd be like white supremacists who said, anybody <laughs> exactly, can be a white exactly. supremacist. We don't care it, if you're right, black to, or Asian. Anybody <laughs> can be a white supremacist. <laughs> <laughs> right, not to not to the point. Right, not to the point where we're like, oh, you look different. We're gonna murder all of you. Right. It's like, oh, you look different. Um, your lifestyle is terrible, and we hate everything about your religion. But if you want to join ours, that's cool. <laughs> gotcha. So we're welcoming. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so because of uh because of all this stuff, uh because of the pushing for a strong national interest and a strong central government and everything that he was able to do to ensure a French eventual French victory in the Thirty Years' War basically established France as the dominant power in Europe for the next 200 years. Because after, Through the Napoleonic after Wars Louis XIII yeah, is yeah. Louis XIV, and then you get into you know France being strong before the Revolution, and then Napoleon takes over, and uh, yeah, France, France dominates Europe. And one of the main reasons for that is Cardinal Richelieu, because at this time, Europe was kind of... Uh, up for grabs. Um, there's a lot of a lot of uh, fighting between the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire and in Spain and the French and all of the Protestant factions. England, obviously. So, yeah, super uh, super influential and uh, super interesting guy. And uh, you know, wore a lot of hats. He has the staying power. Obviously, people still know his name today because of him being a character in the Three Musketeers. 
Yeah, that's Cardinal Richelieu, Liminance Rouge. <laughs> yeah, nice. Se- several notes, and most of them are just kind of random thoughts here. Uh, uh, first is you're talking about obviously the power of France post Richelieu through Napoleon and all that stuff. And it's, I always say I'm a little bit of a Francophile or a lot of a lot of bit of a Francophile, but I always would get mad when people would basically give them crap for the two surrenders. You know, they they were the you know the quick to surrender in World War One and World War Two, but I always saw that as because of their rich rich history and everything. They're like. Yeah, we're not just going to let some stronger army come in here and destroy everything. So if I love my house, I'm not going to be like, by golly, you're never going to take me alive and you're going to burn my house alive. I'm like, oh, no. okay, okay, fine. You can hang out in my house for a little bit. And all the while, I know eventually I'll get my house back. So it's like they're trying to keep their cultural culture and all their history safe. And basically they did. Like the Germans didn't destroy everything in France because they're like, oh, no, hey, okay, yeah, come on in, come on in. Uh, hi. So it's it's basically a little bit of a capitulation. When you can definitely make an argument against it, but right. I saw it more as defending their heritage than right. anything and, else. Which is one of the reasons why, like, uh, so Marie de Medici, um, at, at one point I don't I forget the year, but it's like the early 1600s is when she goes and builds the Luxembourg Palace, which is still there. You can oh, go see it today. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. It's, you know, it's 400 years old at this point, but. Yeah, it's still around. And, you know, maybe if the if France is fighting this like super drawn out protracted war and Paris is getting bombed and shelled day after day, maybe it's maybe it's not. Right, right. I mean, that's just like, I need to again, I, I did say I'm re- rereading the Three Musketeers. I'm curious as I get through it is I don't remember uh, Marie de Medici being a character in it. So it's almost like either Duma, either I'm forgetting or Dumas just didn't even bother working her into the story, which is kind of odd because he focuses more on Anne of Austria. And I think this was accurate that she did have a rivalry with the, the cardinal as well. And I was actually curious if you, if you ran across any of this. So Anne of Austria is who married Louis Thirteenth, but she's Spanish, even though she's Anne of Austria. But it's that whole Hasper connection that you were talking about. So the Hasbergs right. kind of had all these alliances everywhere. So Anne of Austria is actually a Spanish princess because of all the Hasburg stuff. So I was, I was curious if Richelieu helped make that marriage alliance or if it, it probably would have predated his influence, I would imagine. But because they were married about 10 years, I think, before when they were teenagers. So probably would have been about 1614, I think, off the top of my head, they were married. So he was he was the almoner. Okay. He did enter the service of Anne of Austria. I didn't really go into that much because it was I was more focused on the him serving Concino Concini, who was a favorite of Marie de Medici. Right. Uh, but he did he did serve um Anne of Austria. But he probably didn't he didn't help arrange the marriage though. He it would have he kind of wanted to inherit that. Right. That, that yeah, right. Yeah, that yeah. would have been uh, okay. b- before his before time. he had influence. Yeah. yeah, okay. But no, I I did just kind of dig how he does just sound like Yes, he was come from a good family, but he was self-made through hard work and education. There is kind of even still today the debate between was he a true French patriot or is he more of a Machiavellian type schemer for his own ends? And honestly, the truth is probably both just because we always talk about the shades of gray. I think it's I think it's both. I think he loved France and he loved power. <laughs> I don't think those right. have to be mutually exclus- exclusive. Yeah, I, I don't know if you watch which I, I haven't seen the show, but there's a, I think it's a BBC show that is The Three Musketeers. Like a recent one? Yeah. If it's recent, I don't think I've seen it then. Uh, Peter Capaldi plays... Oh, Richelieu? Cardinal Richelieu. Oh, that's a good yeah. casting. Yeah, that's perfect. Which I, I haven't seen the show, but in doing research, I found a video of 
uh, like a clip of the show. And basically, it's like when Cardinal Richelieu is getting his comeuppance and the musketeers like trick him into confessing that he was going to have the queen killed and all this stuff. And he basically says, like, tells the queen, like, hey, I'm just I was only doing what I was doing for the good of France. And she tells him, like, the only reason I'm not going to have you executed is because I actually believe you when you say that. Oh, that's a good moment. That's a good line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I, I guess spoiler alert for anyone who well, I mean, watch that yeah. Show. But yeah, I mean, it, it it does go to show that yeah, he uh, he really was like he did really hard believe that like he was doing what he needed to do for the good of France. Okay, okay, and yeah, he may have benefited it through power, but again, he used that power for for the right. country. I've always. Uh, the Disney version, I think from like the early nineties was, you know, kind of hit the right time because I was kind of just in like middle school or whatever when it came out. And uh, I, I remember enjoying it, you know, long before I ever read the book and I haven't seen it in forever, but I still, I always remember thinking when I read the book, the casting is really good. Like the spirit of that movie does fit. But the one thing that always annoyed me once I learned the history is that that movie has Louis the 13th kill Richelieu. Like, kick him into a river and he drowns or something and it's just like yeah so it's like okay you're so i get frustrated when they change big moments in history like that like that's a you go from everything we just talked about to oh yeah have this weak king finally show his strength by killing cardinal richelieu yeah it's like okay that's just ridiculous another one too so we yeah, obviously in the united states uh for all our overseas listeners we grow up in every history class hearing about the wars of religion in france and it, we always, it's it's Huguenots, and Huguenots, Huguenots. I'm pretty sure it is Huguenot because it's French, and you don't pronounce, you don't, like, you have to be a silent T. So that was, that was one <laughs> that, uh, so I still say Huguenot, even though I'm like, that's gotta be wrong because it's Huguenot. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, I did see it pronounced both ways in like different videos that I was watching. And I was like, I wonder which one's correct. Well, if you go on to, like I was doing, the Google Translate, if the language that you're reading it in is, english it'll say like huguenot oh okay if you switch it to french it says it's like hujano or something like yeah, that hu- oh that's it's, true hujano yeah yeah so um, and, and some stuff does get anglicized that's why i always got a little annoyed yeah. when like obama would always say pakistan i was like it's okay to anglicize it and say pakistan because you don't say france you don't say mexico so some if you say mexico some people well, definitely no, do <laughs> right but obama doesn't so like if you're gonna say know, Mex- if you're gonna say mexico and france it's okay to say pakistan like it's yeah. okay so yeah and uh the other thing i thought was interesting and i'd, I'd be i'd have to double check the timeline on this. So you were talking about obviously how he consolidated power centrally and helped identify that national identity. Well, languages also identified that or coalesced like that. So French today is basically the regional dialect of Paris. So right. languages would have been just as disparate, and they would yeah they would have, you would have still with trade and stuff in the same region. You could still kind of right. roughly understand each other. But what became actual official French was just the dialect of Paris. And you saw similar things with Italy, I think, around Florence. And mm. that became Italian. And so it's just interesting that languages kind of coalesced and got codified and centralized in the same way. But I'd be curious if that timeline probably matches up. And I'm sure it does. It probably is right around the same time, shortly before or shortly after, that you see languages doing the same thing that the political mm-hmm. entities are doing, which, again, that ripples today to we have these firm ideas. The whole country speaks this one language, and it's called right. this country with these borders. Like, everything was just softer before. 
and yeah. Richelieu really did make right. all of these lines that we go today. More at the whim of like the noble families. So you have yeah, like yeah. the Habsburgs, who was like, it's one noble family, but they ruled like the Holy Roman Empire and also Spain, but then Spain had the Spanish Netherlands, but like it's a German family. <laughs> right. It's, it's right. just a it's just it's super different. And that was that was just how it was back then. And then yeah, Richelieu comes along and says, No, we should have countries. And now <laughs> basically, we have countries. Basically. <laughs> uh okay, yes. Uh very very interesting man. He deserves to be in this tournament, and he will uh definitely give our next <laughs> contender I, here a run for her money. I apologize, I did not keep it under an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of watching that ticket away. I was like, okay, there we go. <laughs> but uh, hey, that, he, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. We'll, we'll see how long we go with Elizabeth, uh, which again, <laughs> I think both of us kind of know this story more. So again, I do, I do think she is fascinating. As much as I kind of said I was doing the research and I wouldn't say I was underwhelmed. It was more just like, oh, I'm so familiar with Elizabeth I. I pretty right. much know all these beats just from movies yeah. I've watched, books I've read. Pretty, I had a pretty good handle on her already. But again, the reason I want her on this tournament and again, R.I.P. Wyatt Earp. I insisted that she needed to I, advance <laughs> past I, him. I haven't. I, I forgot to bring it up before, but I am. I do have my. Uh, you tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. Wyatt Earp mug yet again. <laughs> R.I.P. Pour one out for Wyatt Earp. Uh, <laughs> so yes, yeah, she's the granddaughter of Henry the Seventh. We talked about last week, and she is the the last of the five. Tudor monarchs, six if you count, Lady Jane Grey, which it seems like most don't because Lady Jane Grey was never actually crowned, but that does kind of, well, that's going to all tie in during Elizabeth's life, so we'll kind of go to the beginning. And obviously, the context of her father being Henry VIII and all these kinds of things, we're not going to go into super detail there just because there's enough with Elizabeth herself. I'm going to try to, as much as possible, focus on things from her point of view Yes, we'll have to give context to that, but I don't need to hash out the whole biography of her very famous father, uh, Henry VIII. Right. A- and see uh, see our last episode for the details of her grandfather, though, Henry VII. <laughs> so yeah, Elizabeth was born September 7th, 1533 at Greenwich Palace, which is actually no longer exists, but it's basically in that same complex that now has uh, the old Royal Navy College and where the Prime Meridian is and the whole Greenwich you know, England kind of thing. That's that's where that's the area where she was born and named Elizabeth because both Henry VIII's mother and Anne Boleyn's mother were both Elizabeth, so they named their daughter Elizabeth. And I wrote here, you want an interesting start to your life? How about <laughs> the king eschews a thousand years of Catholicism, establishes the new Anglican Church with himself as the head, just so he can marry your mother, so that you exist? Yeah. <laughs> now but you were supposed to be a boy <laughs> so yeah so the whole context of even yes all that is yes this is the second wife of henry the eighth after he divorced his first wife because he's just desperately trying to have a son and again all that is because everything we talked about with henry the seventh ending the war of the roses and they knew there was just that they wanted stability and you get stability through a clear line of succession and mm-hmm. so I've, I've read books that do kind of try to paint Henry VIII in a better light when you look at that as his goal. If if you look at he was actually devout, actually believed that he shouldn't have married his brother's wife, which is what he did. Uh, his, his, his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, was his brother's wife first. 
And so if you start seeing yourself as literally cursed by God for this, this uh, basically what is incest, you can kind of then see he was doing what he thought was right. And despite everything else that goes along with it. So yes, he does then marry Anne Boleyn, uh, who refused to be his mistress. Mistress wanted to say, like, no, I'll be your wife, but I won't be your mistress. So that's kind of what triggered all that stuff. And then yes, their first daughter or their first child is a daughter, Elizabeth, who is only just two years old though when everything goes south with uh, her mother and Willen with you know either your know, rumors of affairs her second I think she maybe might have had a second kid who was a boy but like basically stillborn and so basically she's not given the male heir that he needs and she's supposedly having all these affairs and there's rumors of witchcraft and all these things that Henry used as an excuse to have her executed when Elizabeth is just two years old and Henry immediately remarries so Elizabeth just in her first few years of life, goes from heir to the throne when she's born because right. her older sister is basically Ill- illegitimate on paper because that's the whole reason you legitimize Elizabeth is by saying her older sister is illegitimate. And so she's born as the person who's supposed to be the first queen of England as Henry VIII's heir. But then her mom is executed. He remarries, has a son with Jane Seymour, who is now her younger brother, but he now trumps her as heir. And Elizabeth is now illegitimate. So you go right. from heir apparent to bastard in just the first few years of life. Is that how that I, I guess it would have to be right that if you can uh, retroactively take away someone's legitimacy, like if like, oh, I'm, yeah, I mean, they're doing it. Con- yeah, they're doing it constantly. Like my my mom was the wife of the king when I was born. So I'm legitimate heir. But then my mom is, you know, maybe actually or, you know, maybe just accused of an affair so that's treason so she's executed now i'm not legitimate anymore because my mom was treasonous even though my dad is still the king and i was legitimate when i was born no right obviously especially with mary and the first marriage because that was the whole like justification for the second marriage i agree it's a little different with the second one and you're right this one seems like it should be but it does seem like i think maybe you're getting it an old that gets me a detail i don't have the finer points of Mm. the logistics there but uh I think part of his just continuing to marry is always kind of throwing out the previous marriage kind of thing. Not well, not always because his third wife, Jane Seymour, actually dies. And so that one's never thrown out, (laughs) which side note, (laughs) I actually was just listening to re-listening to Rex Factor. And they talked about that when he was married to his sixth wife, Henry VIII had a family portrait done with him and his three kids and Jane Seymour as the wife and the painting even though he was she was dead and he was married to the sixth wife Catherine Parr I'm like nice oh that is cold (laughs) (laughs) that's one of those things what what's uh (laughs) have you seen those threads like on Twitter what's what's classy if you're rich but trashy if you're poor (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah I don't know. I don't know if that applies, but it, it just it made me. Think I, about it. I would say uh, three children and six wives uh, would, would definitely right, be. There you go. Yeah. Henry the Eighth was never considered trashy, but yeah, talk about a trashy soap opera, Henry the Eighth. So yeah, then the, the rest of his wives, it goes a little more in quick succession with uh, all that, and then he actually dies uh, while he's married to Catherine Parr. So a young Elizabeth, when her her younger brother succeeds their father, Elizabeth is still a teenager and. She actually goes to live with Catherine Parr, which is kind of weird. So she's basically because her mom's dead. So she's mm-hmm. she's basically an orphan at you know fourteen years old or whatever. So she's living with Henry's last wife, kind of away from court. But 
where Catherine Parr did do her a good service, and this would have started, I guess, while Henry VIII was still alive too, but her education was top-notch, like extremely well-educated. She, yeah, she learned French, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, Latin, Greek, and probably also, we're not certain, but like Welsh, Cornish, Scottish, Irish, or Gaelic, whatever, and just like spoke or at least understood all of these languages. And as a teenager... In her spare time, she was like translating works from, you know, Latin and Greek into English. And right. that was something she actually would continue to do. Who who was it that we were talking about in this tournament? I, Cleopatra had similar language knowledge. Cleopatra, that's, I was going to say, I, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's another one of our like <laughs> hashtag boss babes. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it, I was like, one of them like spoke a bunch of languages. And it was like, we were talking about like how hard of a flex it was. When, you know, you'd have someone from another country or whatever come to court and like start yes. speaking and like, yes. oh, you know, I think I need this translator. And it's like, oh, no, actually, I speak that language. Let me have a conversation with you. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. Right, right. And Cleopatra was probably better than Elizabeth at that. But yes, it, it's a right. similar kind of skill set. Well, and it's even more impressive back then. I mean, it's impressive either way. That's, it's, impressive. Right, right. it's impressive today. But it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah I guess even more impressive for uh, Cleopatra that she's able to do that, you know, thousands of years ago. Right, right. And uh, and there's even there's even a few works that are still existent today. It's just like, oh, the only reason that we have the copy of, you know, this work in English is because, oh, yeah, Elizabeth did that before she was queen. And like, oh, nice. OK, that's cool. kind of cool. Yeah. And yeah, so you could you could make the argument by the time she was 17, she was the most educated woman on the planet. Like it was like that intense. And yeah. as far as just they, they were just kind of uh, throwing everything at her and she was just really bright and, and uh, soaking it all up. So, uh, but then there was a little bit of a scandal when her stepmom's new husband kind of had eyes for her, and it's a little unclear exactly what the nature of that relationship was. Like, he was for sure inappropriate around her. That was well documented. The question is, was she into it, and they actually straight up, like, had an affair, or was it more like he was creeping on her and she, like, didn't like it and was trying to get away from him? And right. I kind of, I kind of saw both, uh, both opinions on on that. But either way, right. she was she was sent away to not be around him anymore. Yikes! And uh, it, he he was definitely sketchy. This is Thomas Seymour. He was definitely sketchy because it even goes so far as when her brother dies, or sorry, when Catherine Parr dies, he wanted to like marry Elizabeth and then help overthrow Edward the Sixth and like. It was. And how yeah. old is she at this time? Well, I, I forget her age when Catherine Parr died, but I think like still a teenager. I mean, I guess it was more common back then. No, and, like, right, it right, was right. Different, but like it's still f- gross. Right, right. Anyway, it, well, yeah, probably, yeah, probably, probably late teens, but yes. And uh, he was caught and <laughs> executed for these plots. So right, <laughs> uh, that that kind of that kind of came to nothing, but a first little scandal there. And then uh, her brother died in uh, 1553, so he was 15. Uh, Elizabeth would have been about 20. But in his will, he said that their cousin, Lady Jane Grey, should be his heir because, again, his sisters are officially illegitimate. So he didn't. Mm-hmm. So the king actually declared not his sisters, but. Their cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who was uh, just another descendant of Henry the Seventh, so still a tutor, but not from Henry the Eighth. Mm-hmm. But basically, even though that was Edward the Sixth's uh, will, of course, he was also just fifteen. So again, all the advisor stuff and who has power and all that stuff, all the mach- all the Game of Thrones machinations. Lady Jane Grey was not long for this world. Her faction didn't have enough support, and 
she's of course executed of course she was just a pawn there's i haven't seen it there's even movies about lady jane gray because she's just kind of like hello oh okay oh okay like it goes from you should be queen no you should be dead okay like it's just (laughs) she's just just a poor pawn and all this stuff that didn't have a lot of agency unfortunately and ends up beheaded so mary's faction is the one that has all the power so the daughter of henry viii's first wife she is named the first queen, actually crowned the first queen of all of England because Jane Grey was never crowned. Matilda, Empress Matilda, was never crowned. So Mary does become the first of crowned queen of England. And when she rides into London, her sister Elizabeth is actually by her side. So it's kind of this show of solidarity. Even mm-hmm. though one is Catholic, one is Protestant, they are kind of coming to England together in, uh, again, a show of solidarity and reestablishing some stability to the line of succession, which we talk about being very important. But Mary famously brings Catholicism back after... Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's been 20 years. So like the country had... And that's not so long that there's not... There's definitely still people that want to be Catholic again and are feeling like that this whole travesty of switching to the Anglican Church is just that, a travesty. But so that kind of helps... Or that pushes Elizabeth into more of a basically out-of-court and mary is pretty strict with it obviously she does earn the nickname bloody mary because uh you know a couple hundred people are put to death during this time yeah. and she's trying to she's trying to force everyone back into catholicism basically you're required to go to mass um even elizabeth has to pretend to be catholic in public like just like right. on, put on a show that I, that she's doing all these right uh, she she went way further than oh the official state religion is going to be catholicism again it was like if you're not a catholic I'm going to kill you. Yes, yes. Now, at the same time, and yes, there's a Bloody Mary thing, but at the same time, I was kind of surprised to see that the number of executions was low. It was only only a couple hundred people put to death. So it wasn't like she's killing thousands. It wasn't like the French, you know, Protestants versus Catholics where it's just slaughter. It was technically not that bad. It was a few hundred people, uh, which again, it's horrible, but it wasn't the (laughs) numbers that you would expect maybe for this time. Right, especially coming from like, a queen of England, like talk about the ability to rack up some serious numbers when it comes to killing people that you don't like. Right. right. <laughs> That's almost like show, showing restraint. Oh, only a couple hundred for the queen of England. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and honestly, in parliament that just didn't really have Mary's back. So she yeah. did want to marry, or she did marry the future King of Spain. And she you know wants to get some of the Catholic church lands back. And basically enough of the country had just kind of moved on that they weren't really happy with Mary's aggressive. Like, I think they would have been okay with her Catholicism if she had been less aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. Almost like Mary, well, we'll kind of see with Mary Queen of Scots here a little bit where yeah. Mary was like Catholic, but was kind of chill with Scotland's remaining Protestant. Mary was not. And so she just was not popular there was conspiracies to overthrow her and replace her with Elizabeth, which, of course, lands Elizabeth in the Tower of London. So, uh, I, again, I do kind of just like these. How just You look at, for being, quote, just a royal and just a queen, Elizabeth ends up wearing a surprising number of hats. If you, We've already seen her. I mean, she's barely out of her teens, and she's already gone from born the heir to a bastard to, okay, now... I'm riding with my sister as she becomes queen to now I'm a prisoner in the Tower of London for conspiracies to overthrow my sister, which she is ultimately exonerated of. So the the plots were real, but there was no evidence linking Elizabeth to them. It was basically mm-hmm. like, yeah, they wanted to replace Mary with Elizabeth, but they didn't necessarily have 
Elizabeth's authority to make those plans. Right. And again, it's, it's all these nobles just using these people as puppets, as they tend to do. But uh, yeah, yeah, Elizabeth spent about a full year in captivity, you know, wondering if she would ultimately be executed by her sister. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, there's it's not a crazy thing to uh, think could happen. So yeah, they, they they did bring Elizabeth out of captivity about the time they thought Mary was going to give birth because the idea was that you wanted Elizabeth there to be one either there to witness the birth of her replacement because Elizabeth is mm-hmm. still now technically Mary's heir despite the religious thing, uh, but if Mary had a kid that would trump Elizabeth's role. Or if conversely Mary dies in childbirth, you want Elizabeth there to basically you'd be ready to take the throne. So right. they kind of so that's kind of when she got out of ca- uh, captivity. But it was this weird thing. She wasn't actually pregnant. Like, it was a, it was a false yeah. pregnancy. The, the, yeah, that went so far as, like, because she was gaining a lot of weight and, sh- and mm-hmm. had stopped menstruating. And so everyone just assumed she was pregnant. Right. And then, like, 9, 10, 11 months go by. It's like, oh, I guess she's not pregnant. She's just, right. she's just unhealthy and fat. <laughs> Which again, medicine? They couldn't do a sonogram. It was it was the 16th right. century. Yeah, they, there was right. You, no, uh, there's no pregnancy test. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yes, so Mary was just kind of in poor health and not popular. And then ultimately, Mary did die in 1558 after just five years on the throne. So pretty clear line of succession to the final heir of Henry VIII, and uh, Elizabeth does become Queen of England at 25 years old. Well, I wrote down a whole quote. I don't need to read this whole thing. Um, okay, screw it. I'll read the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah this, this is a clip from her... Oh, a clip. An, an excerpt from <laughs> her... her uh, yeah, <laughs> let's pull up a clip. Uh, they didn't have sonograms, but they had uh, audio recordings. So yeah, this is basically what she said at the start of her reign. My lords, the law of nature moves me to sorrow for my sister. The burden that has fallen upon me makes me amazed. And yet, considering I am God's creature ordained to obey his appointment, I will thereto yield, desiring from the bottom of my heart that I may have assistance of his grace to be the minister of his heavenly will in this office now committed to me. And as I am but one body naturally considered, though by his permission a body politic to govern, so shall I desire you all to be assistant to me, that I with my ruling and you with your service may make a good account to Almighty God and leave some comfort to our posterity on earth." I mean to direct all my actions by good advice and counsel. So yeah, she took the job seriously. And mm-hmm. again, we forget nowadays. Like I don't. I mean, I hope I don't. I don't see Queen Elizabeth II feeling ordained by God and putting God in this position to help England in the same way that they meant it more literally back a few hundred years ago. Right. And, and that even ties into you. You think back to the French Revolution. What Louis the Sixteenth said before he was executed. It's like that he saw authority as a curse that you uh, like a burden that you bury that you right. you bore like your cross to bear was the kingship yeah and so they did kind of see it as like no god put you in this role to serve the country so let's get to work and that was kind of her approach well that's like the whole thing behind divine right of kingship is like yeah god put me here to be the king and because i'm the king that means that whoever my son is god wants them to be king too no right and i get that but i guess i guess at the same time pre-elizabeth it was a lot more authoritarian and right those who don't agree with me can be put to death i mean her father was was obviously very kind of ruthless with yeah. uh, anyone who spoke out against him their, their life was at risk whereas with elizabeth it's much more of a 
moderate, I'm the one in this position, but the goal is not my ego. The goal is what's best for the country. And she seems to have embraced that. And even with the religious issue right off the bat, her approach being moderation, even like a lot of what we see with the Anglican Church today, yes, obviously her father started it, but getting like kind of codified and solidified and the Catholic thing being definitely in the past does kind of get again solidified with Elizabeth here. And the compromise was a lot of Catholic rituals still find themselves in the Anglican Church because she was the one that said it's okay to keep them. So like even things Henry had gotten rid of, she brings back, uh, and I forget the exact details of all of this, but like, you know, certain mass aspects and things that she kept, and I think they still do today, are because she kept them as like a compromise. And basically she had kind of both the Protestants and Catholics mad at her on some things Mm -hmm. because she was so moderate. And the biggest thing was, and this is the mistake her sister made, of course, then we also see people making this mistake today, I think, when we get into politics is, Elizabeth saw religion as a personal matter. You had Mm -hmm. your faith, and it wasn't the state's issue what your faith was or how you practiced your religion. She was very tolerant. Yes, the state was Protestant. No, the Catholics couldn't have all of these things they had before, but she wasn't going to go after anybody for their religion. And so that was a a huge step for kind of just, I mean, the future of England. and, And then we see how the United States kind of then is established on that idea which jumping a little bit ahead, but yeah, even like the colony of Virginia is named after Queen Elizabeth, which most people don't think about, but it's because she's, she's the Virgin queen. Well, and Maryland is named after her sister. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of all that, all that, all that stuff's happening at this time too. So the main thing, again, we talked about the line of succession being important for stability. Well, that will be a major issue for the next 20 years. uh, All the way. Yeah. Even, I think even through like 50 years old, they were trying to marry her off. Uh, but obviously, at some point, it becomes unrealistic that she'll be able to have children. But right. it was just a huge part of her reign was figuring out the line of succession. And she famously didn't marry. She is the, quote, virgin queen. Which is not literal. Like, she had love, Like she had lovers. The, there was the one guy. I don't remember if we talked about him in the last episode that we did. Robert Dudley? I don't think we really mentioned him much. Yeah, Robert Dudley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, she like she had lovers and stuff. Like she was almost certainly not a literal virgin, but yeah, she never she's called that because she didn't marry. No, right. And it was part of the mystique she sold. Now, we don't actually again, mostly because it's 400 years ago, we really don't know 100%. She may have actually never consummated any of these relationships. It is it is, po- it is it's not impossible. It, yeah, and and it's not even right. necessarily naive to believe that. Like it you could you could definitely make the argument that again, the queen is under such surveillance there's not strong, strong evidence of a for sure uh, sexual relationship with any of her suitors. But yeah, it's it's probable it was all just kind of uh, part of her mystique that she was cultivating. Uh, but she actually wanted to marry, as you mentioned, Robert Dudley. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't a match that made sense for a queen. So basically her advisors just put their foot down and wouldn't allow her. And basically it's like, if you marry this dude, you're not going to be secure on the throne anymore. Like it's going to be that big a deal. If you marry this guy, like we will not support you anymore. And now he ends up getting married and they're kind of just lifelong friends. Yes. May have been lovers, maybe likely lovers, but again, not certainly lovers. Right. And, but to the point, like this was like the love of her life though, for sure. Like it's almost like really, really sad. And I don't mean like 
pathetic sad. I mean, like sincerely, like sad, sad right. that she wasn't allowed to marry the well, the one guy she actually did love, and they weren't allowed to marry even after his wife dies. His wife died in an accident, and then so there was even like rumors that Elizabeth had her killed. There's no actual evidence to support right. that. I mean, it's a little suspicious because she like died. She broke her neck falling down some stairs, but. <laughs> But the doctors at the time said, no, there doesn't actually seem to be foul play. Anyway, but it was just enough of a cloud that still the advisor's like, you know, you can't marry the dude. You just can't. And so she finally capitulated. But like flashing forward after she died, they found like what she had locked up because he died, you know, years and years before she died. But she had locked up in her things like, you know, to the end of her life, you know, his his letter. And even like in her handwriting, it says his last letter. And like it's for Robert Dudley, like the yeah. love of her life from just so like they were great friends. She was madly in love with them when they just couldn't get married. So it's actually kind of sad. It reminds me of of the uh, Charles and Camilla relationship that they show in uh, in the crown. Absolutely. No, very much so. Yes. I mean, they're yeah, they obviously love each other. And even after they're both married, like continue a relationship for years and years and years. And right, right. But he's he's not allowed to marry her because like she's not of high enough standing and basically his uh, at least in the show I don't know if this is if it actually happened this way but his no, yeah grandfather and grandmother both like well it's I don't think it's technically his grandfather right Lord Mountbatten oh right he's kind of a father figure for his right. father so yeah, Lord Mountbatten yeah. and then the Queen Mother basically conspire with the Bolses yeah, yeah the the other family yes. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, I would say that it's uh, fairly similar. But yeah, so then throughout her life, the marriage issue she kind of uses to political advantage, though, because whenever they're trying to make any kind of treaty or alliance, she can always just dangle out there, you know, right. like a fishing lure. And she doesn't even necessarily have to like explicitly say it either. Like, oh, if you do this for me, I might marry you. Right. She doesn't promise anything. She just knows that they know that, and so they'll probably help her out. Right. So it does become politically expedient in that in that sense. It is kind of it's kind of both. It's both a irresponsible move for the stability of the kingdom because when she gets smallpox and almost dies, her advisors are basically saying, "If you don't name an heir when they think she's on her deathbed, we're going to have a civil war." Right. But then at the same time, when she does have the long life that she ultimately has, it was a super savvy political move because it prevented a rallying point for her enemies existing. Because she saw it with her sister. When her sister was on the throne, people were trying to conspire to replace her with Elizabeth because there was an obvious heir. When there's not an obvious heir, it's harder for people to conspire against you. So in some ways, not naming an heir helped stability and her position on the throne because it wasn't having all these machinations behind the scenes because there was no one to rally behind. Right. Until we get to famously her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. Right. Who was the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister. Another portrayal in film of Queen Elizabeth I is in the movie Mary Queen of Scots. Margot Robbie plays her. Right, which yeah, which I didn't see, even though I love Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan playing these I heard two women. It wasn't very good. Yeah, the reviews weren't very good. And like even in the trailer, they show them like face to face talking, I think. Yeah. They never they never met. These two right, women never yeah. met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, Mary, Queen of Scots, did give a rallying point to Elizabeth's enemies, specifically Catholic elements, both within England and outside of England, like Spain, who wanted to replace Elizabeth with the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. Right. 
So the reason that's important to Elizabeth's story, though, is, again, because Scotland has switched to Protestantism too. So Mary, Queen of Scots, had a tentative hold on her own throne. She basically has to escape Scotland, and she's debating where to go, and she's thinking about going to France, ends up saying, well, screw it, I'll go to England and basically throw myself at Elizabeth's mercy. So that puts Elizabeth in an awkward position of, (laughs) what do I do with this person who's queen? I'm Protestant, she's Catholic, but I'm okay with her being the the Scottish queen, but at the same time, all my Catholic enemies want her to replace me. And right. so uh, Mary Queen of Scots ends up just being a political prisoner in England for 19 years to end her life with all the time Elizabeth's advisors are telling her to basically have her executed. Like, you're not safe on the throne as long as Mary Queen of Scots is alive. But the precedent that Elizabeth does not want to establish is that you can just kill a monarch. They're put right. there by God. Right. It's like off limits to to do something. Right, like it's, that. It's, you're right. It, it, right, Mary was literally chosen by God to lead the Scots. I'm going to execute her. The hell I am. Yeah. And so, and then, and then, and then someone can just come and do that with me. Right. And well, I mean, spoiler alert: something we're not going to get into. Mary Queen of Scots's grandson Charles the First, who you mentioned was king during Richelieu's time, is executed by Oliver Cromwell's people. Yeah. Not that that's because Mary Queen of Scots was executed, but it, you do start setting a precedent that it's quote unquote okay to execute a divinely placed monarch. So anyway, right. it took 19 years before Elizabeth finally pulled that trigger. Well, she, Mary Queen of Scots, was involved in like in a plot to overthrow the queen, though. Yeah. No, right, and and that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was what finally did kind of. Basically forced Elizabeth's hand when Mary was shown to be complicit in these plots to overthrow and execute Elizabeth. Like they even had her signature on the plan. And it was just like it was it was definitely she was caught red red handed. But even then it was like weeks or even months before Elizabeth finally because she she was trying to commute the sentence still. Like even though she when she was condemned to death, Elizabeth still didn't want to pull the trigger and was just trying to like Basically, her advisors had to like beg her to finally sign off on the execution, yeah. uh, and 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 she was fairly lenient throughout her reign. Anytime there was these people caught, there was tons of conspiracies against her, and and she was always kind of having to fight them off. And she was very lenient with. She didn't like executing these people. She just thought she didn't want to be this tyrant. It just wasn't right. who she was. But she was in this position and kind of did have to do these things a lot of time. Another famous one is when the Spanish are trying to. It was, I don't know if it was necessarily with Mary Queen of Scots, but they were trying to replace her. And the whole Spanish Armada thing is coming to invade England. And mm-hmm. they are ultimately fended off. And actually, I have a good line here, too. Let me see. That. I got another quote. But while you're looking for that, before we move on from Mary Queen of Scots, her execution was is like famously botched like famously yes. terrible circumstances like the yes well she she's wearing black robes and she takes them off and she's wearing like a red undergarment thing that's like to show that she's a martyr yes the guy with the axe because she's beheaded yeah the guy with the axe misses on the first hit doesn't chop her head off yeah the second it was, pretty, it was, it was pretty does, it was pretty gruesome it was it was yeah, really like yeah very r-rated gruesome yeah the second hit does remove her head 
her dog at one point runs out from underneath her because she had like right. a little like you know you would think of like a toy like a uh like a little teacup poodle or something yeah, yeah a little lap yeah. dog runs out from underneath her robes that she was hiding down there the whole time and then after uh after uh her head gets chopped off the hangman or the hangman the uh executioner goes to pick it up and say god save the queen and he grabs the hair and picks it up and it the head just falls out because it's a wig it's not actually her hair and her head just goes rolling off the thing it's just a oh god and right and then and right and then the dog is now like all slipping and covered in her blood yeah, and has co- to be carried yeah, out yeah, and washed and like blood, it was yep. it was a comedy of errors yeah yeah one of the most gruesome scenes like of all history that you could paint yeah but elizabeth wasn't there for that <laughs> right right yeah yeah that happened yeah. yeah that happened far away yeah. um but yeah so like uh here's a here's another good quote from elizabeth again you think about the role of women at the time she's only the second queen of england and she's she's at the south of england dressed in like she has like you know her normal stuff on but then she has she has like a silver breastplate over the top and is speaking to her army as they're about to fight the Spanish to help protect the kingdom and everything. Now what she says is obviously doesn't hold up sexist-wise, but it's for the time, it was powerful. <laughs> she said, I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England, too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare invade the borders of my realm. And then and then they and then they win the battle and beat the famous Spanish Armada. Yeah, which again, some people say it might have been more about the weather than the English prowess. But still, right. it was a huge win for England and for Elizabeth. Let's see. Uh, oh, the other thing about this time, so she got she got smallpox in her late twenties, mm-hmm. and uh, the wig thing with Mary Queen of Scots kind of reminded me of it. So when she was younger, she was kind of famously very pretty, but uh, she got smallpox in her late twenties. That left her scarred and like largely bald. Yeah. So like she survived the smallpox, but so when we think of Queen Elizabeth wearing heavy makeup and a wig, right? It's kind of because she was bald and covered in smallpox scars uh, after her late twenties. When they, yeah, when they thought she was going to die. A lot of people, if they have like a a mental image of Queen Elizabeth the first, it's like yeah, her with like hairline doesn't start till halfway up or halfway back on her head and like literal like white clown makeup basically right right yeah. right it's basically covering smallpox scars in a way that she would just kind of just but then you th- then you kind of combine all these things into building up her image of this virgin queen who's not go- basically she's married to the realm she can't marry any man because she's married to england right and she basically just starts to build this mystique around herself and there was even like semi like cults of elizabeth i don't know if those were more kind of during her life or after but she definitely created this image of herself successfully and kind of was uh filling this role i do think it's interesting all the uh you know alliances that we mentioned you know we were talking about ivan and terrible they were kind of pen pals and i i still think i still get a kick out of that that she was trading letters back and forth with ivan the terrible yeah and uh supposedly he kind of insulted her after she uh, turned down his marriage proposals and all these kinds of things, but she was more worried about talking about trade alliances and those kinds of things. And I thought that's kind of funny. She also had a vast network of spies and propagandists. So she was yeah. always really quick about knowing what was going on and thwarting all these plots and very much what we were talking about with Richelieu. And then she had, you know, a PR crew that was going out and spreading this image of her as, you know, being married to the realm. And she's, you know, this great queen for our country. And just, you literally had to send people out to kind of spread that word in a way that was kind of organic and helped keep you popular. You would kind of see the older and heavier and less attractive she got 
the more and more people started to flatter her about how beautiful she was and nice. she kind of she kind of bought into the whole thing too so she's like in her 50s and 60s and everyone's just like you know you, you got young guys are flirting with her and she's flirting back and she she kind of like believed her own hype i think about just how gorgeous she was as this white painted bald older woman but she was a, a big patron of the arts. Obviously, you have uh, Shakespeare and uh, Marlowe. Obviously, Marlowe's not as big nowadays, but was actually bigger than Shakespeare at the time. Even stories of, oh, I forget which play it was. But like One of the Shakespeare plays was even written as a sequel to one of the other ones because she liked one of the characters. And so oh, Shakespeare really? writes a sequel for her. So would she, have, like, would she have met William Shakespeare? I mean, I know they were uh, contemporaries, but would she? No, right, and they and they meet and they and they meet in the film, right? But I I don't know if there's like a documented case where they would okay. have actually met. But it's also very realistic. If she was in the habit of me- meeting if the she's players, then the she would have England, yeah, and she's a right. fan, and she could easily be like, oh, I want to meet this guy, yeah, right. The only thing I would think is if she saw them as beneath, you know, because it, it wasn't oh, considered a high form. It, it's sure. like today. Yeah, today Hollywood celebrities meeting politicians seems to make sense. But like back then, it's like remember the reason women weren't allowed to act is because it was seen as such a lowly thing to do. Right. It was beneath it was beneath their dignity. Yeah. So it might have been beneath her dignity to actually like have an audience mm-hmm. with a writer gotcha. or an actor. Okay. And, and again, I. They may have also met. I just, I just don't know of right, any specific right, right. instance. Yeah, the dynamic is completely different than how it would be perceived today. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, but she, she definitely was a fan. But yeah, I don't know if they actually met per se. But yeah, he, it was. You know, Shakespeare was kind of getting started, started near the end of his, end of her reign. I think even uh, we've talked about Romeo and Juliet being set, in, or sorry, written in the the 1590s, mm-hmm. and she died in 1603. So it, it's all kind of uh, right there around the same time. And yeah, she never did name an heir. It was kind of a very open secret that she was okay with Mary's son, James succeeding her. Mm -hmm. She would never actually say it though. Cause she did kind of just feel the moment she said it, that they might try to replace her early. And there was kind of no reason to say it. So she never did name an heir, but was succeeded by James the sixth of Scotland, as you said, who becomes James the first of England. And it wasn't actually uniting the kingdom. They were actually, he was just the king of both. So he's the king of the country of Scotland, who was also the king of the country of England. But that wasn't actually uniting the countries yet. That happens later. There's another colonial uh, American connection there because James I of England, who is James VI of Scotland, is who Jamestown, the first colony in Virginia, is named Jamestown after, after him. Right. So it, it is kind of all happening at that same time over these decades here. Yep, for sure. And even as she got older, her, her health was actually good for a long time. She, she was, never really had major health issues after that smallpox scare in her late 20s. But all her friends just kind of start dying off, honestly. And so she just kind of gets depressed. Mm-hmm. And like, I hate to say she dies of a broken heart. But like, as her friends start dying around her, that's when her health starts failing. And she does die March 24th, 1603, at 69 years of age. Uh, she had been queen for more than 44 years, of course, giving her name to an entire epic of English history, Elizabethan England, yep. with this whole second half of the 16th century. And you just think of Elizabethan England, Elizabethan era, it's because it's these you know four plus decades of her on the throne that it, it is kind of a shift. We talked about Henry the Seventh, her grandfather, kind of taking us from medieval into the Renaissance, and I, I think that kind of continues through the whole Tudor 
Rain, and obviously, yeah, she did kill her her cousin. But I, I feel like it's it's a lot less chaotic. And mm-hmm. now she did. There was later in her reign, the economy did kind of tank, and part of like promoting the arts and stuff was to dist- distract people from. Uh, there's kind of more <laughs> poverty and things like that at the time. Yeah. But and, and and she did kind of actually her popularity did wane, and it was more just kind of like. Oh yeah, that old girl still the queen. Like people were kind of starting to roll their eyes a little bit because things weren't necessarily going the well. But they quickly missed her when James the First wasn't super popular. So there was very quickly, like just you know, a decade or two into his reign, everyone's like, "Oh, remember the days of Elizabeth? Those were the times." Like they were just kind of looking fondly back very quickly onto Elizabeth's reign. And and again, we still kind of even do that today. It's kind of this. It was kind of this golden age for england in a lot of ways because i mean shoot you mentioned you know we end up with a civil war just two kings after her uh with charles the first getting beheaded and oliver Cromwell taking over so yes she didn't leave a clear succession it was a peaceful transition to james the first but england wasn't the same after elizabeth there so we mentioned ramesses the great being at this golden age for egypt that's kind of gets kind of elizabeth again things were far from perfect but it was kind of a golden age for England here in the 16th century. So yeah, that's, uh, again, a lot of stuff we were kind of mostly familiar with, but I do think it's mm-hmm. fascinating how she kind of does have these distinct periods, you know, close to being executed by her sister, close to dying from smallpox early in her reign, constantly putting out fires, but doing it well. Her, her Yes, she wasn't the first queen of England, but she was a way better ruler than her sister, so she definitely establishes a good precedent for future queens, like obviously Victoria and people like that, that had uh, long successful reigns following Elizabeth. And yeah, so uh, I think she's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have to decide who moves on to the next round, Cardinal Richelieu or Queen Elizabeth I. And I'm still, frankly, very torn. Like, it's one of the... I, I, and I almost kind of like these, where we finished doing both full biographies, and I'm sitting here right now, and I don't know which way I want to vote. Yeah. So I'm kind of okay with either. I'm okay with playing devil's advocate. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess Richelieu does stand out more as unique because there are so many... You know, Because he has more of a unique role. But at the same time, there's always powerful advisors. We've talked about them before. You talk about, you know... Roger Mortimer with, you know, Elizabeth of France and the role he played. Like, mm-hmm. there's always these people, or, you know, Warwick the Kingmaker. So there are definitely Richelieu types, just like there's Queen Elizabeth types. Well, even with even with uh, with Elizabeth, you have the Sir Francis Walsingham, who's like her kind of right-hand man, sort of spy master guy, who I think was actually the one who uncovered the plot oh, right, that, right. that Mary, Queen of Scots, was involved in. Yeah, it was actually like a big sting operation. Like, they were doing, like... Yeah getting people to betray Mary Queen of Scots and doing secret messages that they were aware of. And yeah, it was, out, uh, yeah. Oh, and the one, the one thing during Elizabeth's reign I didn't mention is of course you had, you kind of had the beginnings of, uh, or at least a big, uh, privateering. So yeah, kind of like state sanctioned pirates. Like it's like, okay, well we'll right. excuse you Francis Drake. If you steal a bunch of stuff from the Spanish and we won't call you a pirate, we'll say it's privateer and you're doing it for England. Yeah. And so a lot of that, I was looking up like the whole, 
The Pirates of the Caribbean movie, though, is uh, is actually set about 150 years after uh, Elizabeth. But you were getting the beginnings of that kind of thing where we're over in the New World. You do have these ships all in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the whole piracy on the high seas. That was definitely big during uh, this time as well. But yeah, uh, I think I'm still leaning Elizabeth just because the whole how she comes into being, you know, just because I still think she stands out quite a bit because... So originally you could argue is just as important historically mm-hmm. with everything we talked about. But again, there's always there's always those people doing things behind the scenes. And yes, he's one of the most important of them. I just think you have so many times her life was at risk. And as a woman, and even in the movie Shakespeare Love, and again, this is, you know, just from the movie, but Gwyneth Paltrow plays the woman who actually ends up being an actor and she's not supposed to be in Elizabeth says to her, I know something of being a woman in a man's world. Oh, by God, I know something about that. Like, it's just kind of like, yeah, she, she is such an underdog as a woman in this role. So that is a good point. However, yes, she is a woman, but she is also the Queen of England. Whereas Richelieu was doing the same thing, dodging these assassination attempts and plots left and right. But he's not the king and he's not even like... I mean, he he becomes a duke later, but, you know, because he, like, worked his way up to it, he's a member of the clergy who is, like, starts off as just a bishop and works his way to the estates general where he uses his little bit of power to grow it into more power by lobbying for clergy to have more power. Then he gets to be the chief minister by plotting and scheming. And then he holds on to it. He's not even, you know, he goes from just a minor noble family, his mom's a widow, to basically ruling France and shaping Europe for the next 200 years. No, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a fan. <laughs> no, it's, I, there's, yeah, I like the argument of the self-made thing. It's similar to what we talked about with Napoleon, that there's just something about the people who yeah. come from nothing to do this. Obviously, as much as, right. yes, Elizabeth does end up kind of like, oh, she's officially a bastard for a little bit. She might get killed by her sister. But ultimately, she was the daughter of a king. Right. And Richelieu, too, is in a unique position where we, we talk a lot about, like, oh, what makes someone interesting? And one of those things is, do they wear a bunch of different hats throughout their life. And Richelieu is especially especially interesting because not only did he wear multiple hats, but he wore them at the same time. He is a clergyman who is also a high political leader who is also fighting in battles and leading troops in combat all all simultaneously at the same time. It's not like he's doing those things one after the other. Right, very, very much like a Julius II. Right. Almost too much so, like a Julius II. <laughs> been, th- been there, done that. Julius II did it first. <laughs> While having Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> right. Oh, Richelieu was actually, though famously, like a big patron of the arts and was like really oh God, oh into uh, <laughs> art. art. So, I mean, it's, I didn't really go into that. It wasn't as relevant to the all of the you know conquering and stuff. But. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so it sounds like we're gonna have to put it to the vote. It sounds like we <laughs> sounds like okay. we are. Now the, the dynamic here is very interesting. So I have won the last two in this round, but which means I only have I think fifty one points left. You want to double check the math on that and make sure I'm not cheating. Okay. Um let me look. And Logan has the full one hundred remaining, but 
Logan also wants to make sure he saves some points for old T.E. Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) You know me too well. (laughs) So there's still a little bit of strategy uh, going on here. I'm trying to see. Where do I see the 17 for Ashoka the Great? Right. And then I put 32 for Puyi. Oh, 32. Oh, you put 32 for Puyi? I don't remember that. (laughs) A little overboard on that. (laughs) Sheesh. Well, again, you still you nothing's compares your your forty to my seven on uh, Isabella France versus Vlad the Impaler. But yeah. yeah, okay. So is that right? So that adds up to forty nine, leaving yeah, me so with fifty one. So you have fifty one points left. Okay. Okay. So we are going to uh, we're going to put in our uh, numbers, then we'll hit enter on the count of three uh, to see who advances. Okay, I have a little bit of a strategy here. Okay. <laughs> All right, so three, two, one. Wait, hang on. I'm still, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to, okay. to do math in my head. Oh yeah, gotcha, gotcha. It's like Jeopardy. It's like figuring out the uh, final, uh, your final bit wager on Jeopardy when you're ahead and you want to make sure you guarantee your win, but also leave some wiggle room in case you get it wrong and they get it right or whatever. Yeah, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to do math, but also trying to remember how the rules factor in. Because if you if you if I win, I lose the points that I place, and if you win, you lose the points that you place as well. Right. So if I if I win, you'll have a full one hundred next time. Right. If you win, I'll have forty nine next time, and I'll have one hundred minus whatever I put down. Correct. No, you have fifty one next time. You've only used forty nine points. That oh yeah right 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 oh right that makes it really tricky for you then. Yeah. If it was an even, like, 50, it'd be, yeah, it'd be... Oh, right, because like, there's a world where you could just go 50 this week, 50 next week, and you got them both locked up. Right. But I have 51 left. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for the, for the listener. <laughs> Damn it. Logan bid 48... I bid 49. That is that is so indicative of how I, I, how we I half thought you were going to go 49, but then we would have tied. I, we would have right. to call Joe. Right. If if I went 49 and Oh, cuz then we would have tied next time. I was going to say, yeah, my thing was if I if I You needed 52 left to beat me next time. Right. If I did 49, then we would both be 51 going to this. I wanted to leave have a one extra point advantage. If I okay. if I won, right, right. But then I'm in the boat where it's kind of like I'm only going to win one of these next two, possibly. So I could have gone to the full fifty-one here. So it's yeah, it's it's a gamble on which one do you think, like Queen Elizabeth, or do you know enough about Gandhi where you want to vote hit? Like yeah, right. And then the flip side is if you would have guaranteed this one, basically this guaranteed. If you beat me, it's because I have all fifty-one left, and I'm going to beat you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, right. If if you if you um yeah, because if so if if I bid 50 if I bid 48 this one and you bid anything less than 48, I could still win the next one. So right. you could basically force me, you could force a win here and then give up your chance but while while guaranteeing a win here. Yeah, exactly. By bidding exactly. 49. Yeah. So so spoiler alert, there's a very high probability <laughs> That T. Lawrence will be Gandhi next week or next time. 
But uh, we will still play that out. So yes, yeah, so Queen Elizabeth advances to face Genghis Khan. Nice. <laughs> she needs to avenge her grandfather. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. So I do like the idea. She goes in to face Genghis Khan, who's carrying... We need to figure out what relics he's carrying from uh, uh, Henry VII. I'm trying to think what stands out as a relic for him. That'd be fun. Actually, that'd be something fun to maybe we can talk about with Joe is what relics everyone brings into the uh, Elite yeah. Eight and then into the Final Four. We'll have right. Joe help us uh, brainstorm relics. But yes, she will face Genghis Khan. We now just have one Elite Eight spot left to fill, and that will be done next time when we pit Gandhi versus T.E. Lawrence.